The book of James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. James talks to us where we live. I mentioned last week Dr. McGee has a very apt statement concerning James's writing. And uh, Dr. McGee says James sort of puts it where the rubber meets the road. Well, that's sort of getting practical. And uh, he's going to talk to us tonight about the subject of wisdom. Wisdom. Verses 5 through 8 of chapter 1 and verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3. Now, you may be wondering why we're skipping the rest of the first chapter and over chapter 2. James, in his first chapter, he talks about different subjects that he sort of goes in detail in other parts of his book. The first four verses dealt with the subject of trial and testing and hard places and so on. And then in these next few verses, he talks about wisdom, but then he picks that subject up again in chapter 3 and lets us take inventory to see if we have God's wisdom in our life. He'll show us some things that wisdom will do if we have it. And then verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul or James talks about a subject that he'll pick up again in chapter 5. So we'll leave those verses until we get to the fifth chapter. Chapter 4, he talks about a subject he picks up again in chapter 4, or I'm sorry, in verse 12, rather. Chapter 1, he picks up the subject again in chapter 4. So tonight, the reason for skipping these other verses is that we want to see what he says about the subject of wisdom when he goes into detail. Verse 5, if any of you like wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now there's three words tonight that I want to call to our attention, and those words will be first the source of wisdom. Where does it come from? And then we'll look at the securing of wisdom. How can we obtain it? How can we lay hold of this thing James calls wisdom? Now in the third chapter, the third word is what I call the showing of wisdom. The source of it, the securing of it, how to lay hold of it, how to obtain it. But then in chapter 3 and verses 13 following, he asked a question, verse 13, he said, Who is a wise man and do with knowledge among you? Now, to understand the thrust of that verse, he just got through talking to basically the teachers. They're called masters in verse 1. And in James's day, there were people that were had a lot of selfish ambition. Their motives was wrong as you studied this. And they were going into places of leadership, but not really with the call of God on them. And James is warned about... Sometimes our words could be given without wisdom. And he, he deals with the subject of the tongue. Most of chapter 3 deals with that one subject, the tongue. And after he get, begins to give the inspiration, the instruction about how the tongue is to be used for God's glory, he asks a question to that audience, who is a wise man? And endued with knowledge among you. He usually puts wisdom and knowledge together, but wisdom will always come first. Now note what James says, how practical he is. 
James says, let him show, not let him say. In all of this first part of chapter 3, he's been dealing with people, he's been saying a lot of things, but they hadn't been showing very much in their life. And I repeat, he takes the entire chapter, the first 12 verses rather, and deals with the subject of the, a small member of a man's body. He calls it the tongue. Uh, I'm going to preach from there when we get there and entitle the message, The World's uh, Greatest Troublemaker. He's the smallest, but he's the greatest. I told him last Thursday, some of you weren't here, that I preached when I went through this in my last pastorate, and I entitled the message on these first 12 verses, the meanest member in our church. And he's a little member, but he's the meanest, amen? And he's the tongue. He said he's a little member, um, but uh, he, there's much damage that tongue can do. And so James has been talking to a group of people that's, that's free with words, but there wasn't much wisdom in their words. They, they were rather destructive. And so he comes right to this subject of wisdom. That's why we've turned here to pick up in verse three, 13. Of this third chapter, note what he says. He says, let him show. So tonight we're going to look at the source of wisdom, the securing of wisdom, and then we're going to look at showing of wisdom. James says, let him show out of a good conversation. That word uh, doesn't mean just his talk. It refers basically to his walk, his life. Out of a good conversation, his works with meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom, he's going to contrast what he calls an earthly, sensual, devilish wisdom with the true wisdom from above. So he says, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion, and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now James is going to talk to us about wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you like wisdom, and that any, of course, the implication is we all do. Not a person that, could, that did not fit into that category that stands in need of wisdom. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about wisdom? Uh, we're not talking about uh, necessarily intelligence. Now, stay with me. A person could uh, have a lot of intelligence, have an, uh, a high IQ, and, and uh, still not have the wisdom that God's Word talks about. And uh, a person could have an high IQ and, of course, have the wisdom that God talks about. But when he talks about wisdom, he's not just simply talking about intelligence or education. Someone else said, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about common sense. Well, where I came from, they used to used to use that term a whole lot. I used to hear especially old-timers say, well, he doesn't even have common sense. <laughs> You've heard that. Uh, I've even heard it to put it another way. Uh, they'd say common horse sense. You, you've heard that, haven't you? We've all heard that. But uh, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about, even though I guess it's good to have some common sense. But he's not talking about just common sense. He's not talking about education necessarily. He's not talking about intelligence. 
He's not talking about common sense. I read for one old timer, they asked him what he thought common sense was, and he's a coon hunter. You know what he said common sense was? He said common sense is that thing if you'd put a little on a coon dog's nose, if he ever barked up a tree, there'd be a coon up there. Amen. <laughs> well, that, uh, that's pretty well put, I guess, but uh, uh, we are not tonight just talking about common sense. Dr. McGee a comment on this verse. It was, uh, I smile when I read his comment on it. He's talking about how sometimes a person could have quote, unquote, a lot of intelligence and know all the facts and, and have uh, a high IQ and, and education and still not what he called just have down-to-earth common sense. He said he was playing golf with a fellow that had a PhD as well as a lot of string of degrees also and said, start raining. The fellow seemed to be frustrated. said, Dr. McGee, I mean, you know, what should we do now? <laughs> Dr. McGee said, I didn't have to have a PhD to say, we better get it out of the rain. Amen. Well, uh, so, now please, James is not putting education down. He's going to talk to him about knowledge. But James is talking about something that cannot be acquired from just studying now, knowledge and education and putting facts together. Uh, that's the way we do it. But James is going to talk about something that's so essential and it's in the grasp of all of us tonight. Wisdom, he calls it. The book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, the Lord is mentioned there oftentimes when he's talking about wisdom. It's referring to him. Wisdom is personified. Wisdom is pictured as a person. And wisdom is pictured as talking. And speaking, and, and I repeat it, he's pictured as wisdom. And the Bible said he's made unto us, believers, wisdom. The Holy Spirit is, is mentioned in a place or two as the spirit of wisdom. And so to the child of God tonight, if you just really want to be technical and thoroughly scriptural, this wisdom is God giving himself to you and filling you and me with the blessed spirit. And wisdom will be evidenced in that person's life. Now, coming on verse 5, right after he talked about the trials, the tests, the hard places we looked at last week that we all fall into, in verse 5, he brings up the subject of wisdom. It's strange and interesting to me that he did not say, if any of you like uh, grace, let him ask God. Or if you like power, let him ask God. Or if you, if you like love, let him ask God. He didn't ask any of those, but it's wisdom, you see. We learned last week that the theme of the book of James is, is mat spiritual maturity. He wants you and me to grow up. He doesn't want us just to grow old. He wants us to grow up and become mature saints of God. And one of the things that he uses to, in order to bring that development in us is hard places, trials. But here's what he's saying. When you find yourself being disappointed, when you find yourself of... If you please, the bottom falling out, and all of a sudden, just something going wrong. Someone has said we'll either respond or react in one of two ways. Either there'll be panic, or we'll have peace. And if we're not careful, we'll go to pieces. We'll just push the panic button, and, and just, I mean, we, we can't control it when suddenly, as we learned last week, suddenly, sometimes sad news comes to you, and something you hadn't anticipated, hadn't thought of, and all of a sudden, boom, if we are not a mature saint of God, James is going to tell us we panic. Babies easily go to pieces. And 
James says what will happen, we'll push the panic button, go to pieces, and cause everyone around us to go to pieces. But he's saying that these things comes in our lives so that we can grow, but right on the heels of the problem, he says, ask God for wisdom. Why? So we'll not waste that experience. Did you know that hard place you're going through right now could turn into one of the greatest blessings of your life? I don't miss what I'm saying here tonight. I, I don't want to project myself as someone that's arrived at some plateau, but listen carefully. In the nearly 20 years that I've served God, there's been some experiences that God has let me go through. Tonight, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't put a price tag on them. They're valuable because through that sometimes difficult experience and through that sometimes disappointment and even heartache even, God used that experience to draw closer to me, to do something in my life, to do something through us that I do not believe would have happened otherwise. Now listen carefully. I'm not pre prepared to stand here tonight and say to the Lord before this audience of people, Lord, send me a hard place. Uh, I'm not going to do that, amen? Uh, I, I'm not any real hot water right now that I know of, and, uh, uh, and I'm not any hard place right now that I know of. But I'm not prepared to stand here tonight and say, Lord, let the bottom fall out again. It's not pleasant when it falls out, but when we walk with him, there's always a purpose in it. And uh, you may not see it overnight, but if you're God's child in God's will, loving him, I'm not a fatalistic teacher, but there's not anything could ever come in your life without God permitting that. He's God. He's our Father. And so he says when that hard place comes, You'll need wisdom so that you can just let that experience bring maturity and bring him closer. Because if we don't know how to act in the hard time, if we're not careful, we'll waste that experience. Now, what's the source of wisdom? Well, look at verse 5. said, let him ask of God. And that's the only place in the world that a person can get wisdom. He said that giveth to all men freely, that is, liberally, generously, and upbraideth not. Now that's an interesting word. It means that he won't scold you for asking. It means he won't reprimand you when you come to him and say, Father, I just don't know what to do in this situation. I don't have the ability to make the decision right, and I need help. God, I repeat, will not scold you and say, well, you was here yesterday. Literally, they tell us here, those that know the literal language that this, this was translated from, here's literally what it says, and it's beautiful when I saw this. You know what, in essence, he said here, said where he says, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. Literally, he said, let him ask the giving God. Did you know that's God's nature tonight, is to give? God's not a God of a clenched fist tonight. God is a God of an open hand, and it's the nature of God that God is constantly giving, always giving, and, and God is never impoverished when he gives. He always still has the same and always has plenty. And James is saying, if you like wisdom, you come to God. He's the source. He's a giving God, and he'll not reprimand or scold or chide or put you down when you come. He won't upbraid you. I was in the home some time ago, and little fellow came in. I don't remember all the details, but he had a toy of some type that he was having difficulty of, of, of fixing something on it or putting something together. I'm not sure what he was doing. But uh, the best I recall, it was something not real difficult to, to his father or to me. 
And yet it was something, I mean, it was, it was something puzzling to him. And I, just a little fella, he had that. And he asked his dad for assistance, for help, if you please. And the dad scolded him in my presence and the presence of the preacher that was with me. And to be honest, he may not use this, this pointed, uh, crude term, but to him, he, he, the implication was, you're a dummy. And the fellow's face got so red, it shocked him. He looked, he was embarrassed. And in essence, he said to him, I mean, are, are you that stupid? You've got to ask me to do something that simple for you. And to be honest, and I wasn't rude to that in that man's home and, and to that man, but I wanted, I, I wanted to grab that little fellow and say, hey, I'll help you with that. And you know what the Lord seemed to say to me as I thought about it later? That little fellow will think long before he comes running to his dad again. His dad scolded him. His father upbraided him. His father didn't give of his advice and his wisdom and his know-how and his ability that he should have given, in my opinion, that little fellow. But uh, I don't know the man's motive, of course. But there was a man, maybe an unthinking, when he said what he did, that little fellow. It intimidated him. He was cowed down and made him feel sort of worthless and went out of the, out of the room. And a father who had the ability and the wisdom and should have had the love and the tenderness, in my opinion, and the understanding to excuse himself from his preacher friends and have said, why, son, I can help you with that. Do you know we got a father that'll never say, you dummy? <laughs> nah, he knows all of us and, 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 and we could wear that title, but he doesn't say that to us. He just said, I'm a giving God, and you can just come on and come on. And the source of wisdom tonight is our Heavenly Father. He says, you can come to the giving God. And he gives liberally. He gives generously. He gives freely. And he upbraids not. So that's the source of wisdom. Where does it come from? It comes from God. Now, the securing of wisdom. How do we go about laying hold of this wisdom that's so desperately needed. Someone said, Preacher, what is wisdom? Well, best definition that I've ever run across of what wisdom, according to the Bible, is, it's being able to see things from God's point of view. Being able to act as if the Lord himself would act. Listen carefully. Someone said, by knowledge, men can take things apart. But wisdom enables a man to put something back together. And I think if I understand correctly what wisdom means throughout the entire Bible and to the Jewish people that James basically, he was writing to Jewish Christians in that early era of the church, and they put such a high premium, such a value on wisdom. And so James has much to say in two or three books. And I repeat, it means seeing things from God's point of view, solving problems like God would solve them. And that wisdom is available to us. We all stand in need of it, but if you've got a decision to make tonight, I mean, go to God. He's the source, and he'll let you know what he would do in that situation. And when that decision is made according to the way he says it'll be made, he says it won't result in envy and strife. And any time we make a lot of decisions that God didn't lead in, James going to tell us in a minute, James is very practical. He's going to spell out some things that you'll see in your life and your home and your church and your surroundings when God wasn't in the source of wisdom. So he says there's the source. God is the source. 
And then the securing of this wisdom. How, how can it become mine? Well, verses 6, 7, and 8 deals with the matter of securing, laying hold, obtaining this wisdom. Verse 5 tells us to let, us, let him ask, so that's prayer. Verse 6 says, let him ask in faith. And uh, verse 7 says, as the certain type of person, he need not think he receive anything from God. He just wants to put it down. He says nothing. Let not that certain man, that man, he's the one he just talked about in verse 6, latter part, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now these same principles tonight that secures wisdom, can, uh, uh, that'll secure any blessing that God has for us, really. And so, look please, he says prayer, of course, is the answer, but he says three things about prayer. Verse 5 talks about the freedom to pray. Let him pray. I was thinking in the prayer room this afternoon that if the truth was known about most of our praying, our prayer life, most of us would be embarrassed if others knew how little time we really spent with God. I don't know how anyone or how this person arrived to this uh, conclusion, but the estimate was given that the average Christian did not spend five minutes a day in secret prayer. Now, how they came to that statistic, I'm not sure. But five minutes a day in secret prayer, the average Christian, I wonder tonight if we took an average of the ones of us in this building and we was absolute honest before God, I wonder tonight if, if we've spent over five minutes this day, on this Thursday, if we've spent over five minutes in secret quiet time alone with God in prayer today. James says there's freedom to pray. Oh, the privilege of prayer. Let him pray. But many of us abuse that privilege. We just do not pray. Not only is there freedom to pray, but verse 6 says there is faith to pray. Look at it, please. Let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with a wind and tossed. Let him ask in faith. Faith to pray. Now, we're not careful sometimes. I fear we... We look upon prayer sort of as a, well, us drawing up our list of what we desire, what we want, and going to God and saying something like this, Lord, I'm, I'm praying, I'm bringing this to you. Now I'm asking with faith as if somehow we could just draw our list up and use faith sort of as, sort of as an additive, little, little something you sprinkle on and gives the prayer more force and say, now, Lord, I'm praying with faith. But note that verse doesn't say, pray with faith. I'm not trying to confuse you. I think we need to see this. Look at verse 6. Then say, let him pray with faith as if I can just draw up a list, anything I want, and then somehow faith is something I add to it. It says, let him ask in faith. You say, what's the difference? Well, in faith simply means in accordance to what he said in the book. If I'm going to pray and ask God for something and expect God to give it to me and have the freedom to pray and the firmness we'll look at in a moment and then the faith to pray, it has to be something that's based in this precious book. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, the Bible said. And so faith is really taking hold of a promise of the Word of God. As God speaks to our heart, we claim that promise and then we come and trust God, ask in faith and say, Lord, we've got a promise here. You've laid this on my heart this is from you and James said if we ask in faith nothing wavering nothing doubting just come in faith and believe God and say Lord this is your word you spoke this to my heart and God has made it real to you you can ask God 
and you can obtain it because there's faith to pray. Not only firm, or rather freedom to pray and faith to pray, but look at the last part of the verse. We call that firmness to pray. James said, make sure that if that person is going to pray, let him ask in faith, but said, uh, Nothing wavering. That's an interesting statement. And the picture he gives here is like a wave out on the sea that's so unstable, so undependable. Uh, situation there, of course, that he speaks of the instability of a person that one week wants to live for God, the next week he don't think it pays to live for God. So he, he's going he's gonna, to, he, the Bible calls him here, he says, a double-minded man. And literally he's talking about a two-souled man. A man that lives for himself, tries to, and for God. And yet James is saying, let not that person, that person with no firmness in his life, no stability, no wholeheartedness, James said, that person ought ever think he'll receive anything of the Lord. Firmness to pray. Wholeheartedness. I mean, just driving down the stake and saying, I'm going to mean business for God. I'm going to sell out to God. I'm going to go with God. And me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. James says when that person means business that way, he can have the mind of God. He can have the heart of the Lord. He can talk to God, and God will give him wisdom. Freedom to pray. I wonder if we're using it tonight. Faith to pray. You see, faith cometh by hearing and hearing the Word of God. If we neglect this precious book here, we not even know what to pray for. We not have any promises made real to our soul if we neglect this book. And so James is saying that the way that we secure wisdom, of course, is through prayer. Take advantage of the privilege of prayer. Pray in faith. Pray with firmness. But I've sort of heard over the first two points, and I want us to look at this last one, if you'll turn with me to chapter 3. And he wants us tonight just to sort of take inventory and to see if we have faith, or rather this wisdom, if our faith is laid hold of what he calls wisdom. It's just really, it's just the Lord controlling the person's life. It's, we want to be real technical. He is our wisdom. And when a person is yielded to him and controlled and filled by him, James is saying that there's going to be something valuable take place in that person's life. And so I use the, the word from my outline tonight, not only the source of it, God is the source. The securing of it, God says we can secure wisdom through prayer. But then the showing of it. Now James is not saying, and I'm not using the word as if it's paraded and put on display, but I use the word because of verse 13. James says, let him show out of his life, really, out of a good conversation, out of a good life, James is talking about, his works with meekness of wisdom. Now, we'll learn in the first 12 verses of this chapter that there were some that were pretending to have wisdom, but they weren't very meek about it. They were parading their wisdom, so-called. And so that's the reason he puts with the word here, meekness of wisdom. Meekness, we learned Sunday night something about it. Simply means power under control, not weakness, but meekness. A teachable spirit. A person with meekness never ever tries to defend himself in the sense, I mean, he doesn't have to always be on the defensive when he hears something. A meek person is a person that's under control and is teachable and is yielding in their life. Never always touching on defense. If someone says something about a person with wisdom, that person is, is open to criticism. That person, if he has wisdom, James is saying there's a meekness about wisdom. Now, 
He puts a value on wisdom and also he tells us here there's a victory of wisdom. And he contrasts the two. What he calls the wisdom below and wisdom above. And to make it just put it in everyday language, James says there is a system that comes from the world that and comes from, he calls it here, sensual from, from self. And even sometimes it's devilish. Look at verse 15. Earthly, sensual, and devilish. Now when he says earthly, he's talking about the world, talking about a system around us. And sometimes people make decisions simply because they got their information from a system around us or their own selfish uh, uh, part of them gave them that, uh, that direction, that wisdom. Or he says sometimes it can be demonic. Sometimes it comes from the devil. Now he's going to look at that kind of wisdom. Let's just look at it before we look tonight at the showing of real true wisdom. Look at verse 16. He tells us about three things there. Always happens where... Now keep in mind, he's talking to church people. God's people. He's talking about church life. He's talking about uh, a, a people together, worshiping together. Chapter 2, we'll learn how that uh, a wealthy person came into the assembly and they, they showed partiality to him and they gave him a real comfortable place to sit and a poor fellow came in and they treated him with ill treatment and, and put him in a corner somewhere. So James is writing to a church. And so we need to keep that in mind that James is not assuming to talk to world leaders about wisdom. He's talking about church people and church life. Now, what happens when we make decisions in the assembly when God wasn't in control, when God was not the source? Well, he says the first thing, he says where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. But note the contrast, the wisdom that's from above, it's going to be quite different than that. Anytime there's envy and jealousy in my heart toward another servant of God, I can rest assured that I'm not actually right then experiencing the wisdom of God in my life. You see that thing of envy? That thing that leads to strife? Envy and jealousy is used interchangeably oftentimes in the Bible, but really if we want to put it right down where we all get a hold of it, envy is that attitude of life that it hurts, it hurts a person to see another person succeed. It's hard on a person uh, to see someone else's success. A person, if they have envy and jealousy, they cannot rejoice in the other person's in the other person's promotion. It hurts them. I've studied this thing over the years, tried to some about jealousy and envy, as the Bible talks about. The Bible says jealousy is as cruel as the grave. What's it mean by that? The grave separates. I mean, grave speaks of death, and the very term of death, it's separation. The, the Spirit's left the body. And he says, where there's jealousy, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your church, wherever it's at, it's as cruel as the grave. It has a separating power. It separates people, and it brings division and strife. Where there is envy and strife. Now, keep in mind, verse 15 says, this wisdom... There's a people in James as they claim to have wisdom, but there was, there was envy in the church, there was strife in the church, there was cliques in the church, and James is saying on the inspiration of God, he said, hey, don't you claim to be wise, and you have that in your heart, and you're causing that kind of problem. James says, that way. You're in England that uh, has left a number of books behind. You can get F.B. Meyer's books, they'll bless you. 
F. B. Meyer was a pastor in, in England at this particular time. So was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And so was G. Campbell Morgan. All three of those people are three of my favorite expositors when it comes to reading. I have scores of books by all of those men. G. Campbell Morgan is, in my opinion, I mean, there's no expositor to open the Bible like, like Morgan. Spurgeon was over at the big uh, tabernacle, and God was blessing him. Morgan was sort of this direction, and Meyer was between them. And Meyer says God was so blessing Spurgeon's place, as he called it, and Morgan had come to town and been there a few months and said they were going to hear that man open the Bible and fill in those buildings and said, there I sat. <laughs> and F.B. Meyer in his own words said, envy. That old me. When I heard someone talk about, oh, the great Spurgeon, I met, he said, I may have, you know, given consent, but inside I couldn't rejoice. And then when someone said, I want to hear, and Morgan had what they called a Friday night Bible class, and it, be, it became famous everywhere he's ever at. He just had a Friday night crowd to come to him, open the Bible, and fill up buildings, and just stand there and open the Bible, chapter by chapter. And he said when they'd talk about Morgan being blessed down the road, and Spurgeon being blessed down the road, F.B. Meyer said, it nearly killed me. Let me digress to say this. I've studied this thing of envy and jealousy. Did you know it sort of runs in a class? Preachers usually get jealous of preachers. Singers get jealous of singers. Deacons get jealous of deacons. Doctors get jealous of doctors. Farmers get jealous of farmers. Usually it's not farmers getting jealous of doctors, amen. I mean, it's usually, it's in its class. Teachers jealous of teachers. Bus workers jealous of bus workers. It's that spirit of rivalry. It's that spirit of competition. And James is saying, whenever that's in our heart, if we're honest enough to admit it, James said, you don't have the wisdom of God. You're not filled with God, he says. F.B. Meyer said it was about to kill me. Morgan's being blessed. Spurgeon's being blessed. And I'm at a standstill. And said, all of a sudden, I saw how wicked I was before God, though I'd told no one. He said, I started crying out to God to have mercy and said, I started pouring my heart out every day. Lord, bless Spurgeon and pour it on him, Lord, and bless Morgan. And said, he so blessed them, they had an overfill and said, it spilled over in my place and it filled up mine too, he said. And he said, from that good day to this, God began to bless F.B. Meyer when I learned to rejoice with those that rejoice. Oh, listen, if we can learn that tonight, you know somebody being blessed, you rejoice with them. And that'll please the Father, and he'll bless you because of it. Someone stands up to sing, the rest of you singers, you ought not look with any envy or jealousy, with any com uh, a competitive spirit. You ought to be pulling for him and saying, Lord, bless him. Lord, bless her. And when you stand up the next time, God will bless you. I was in a meeting some time ago, and there was two groups. There was sort of a benefit-type service, and they had a trio to sing, and they had a quartet there to sing. And I knew both groups, but I hadn't been around either of them for a while, especially the trio. And it's been, been some years since I'd heard them sing. And they came up there and with the Spirit of God on them and the blessing of God. And the quartets had a couple of, uh, of songs to start with. And they came with a couple and they had some announcements. And each one was to have a, a couple more. And I'm being honest. It's, it's starchy and as dry as I am. I want to jump up and down and say, Hallelujah. I mean, when that trio opened their mouth and, they, and, and there, was no, there was no show off or anything like that about them, but they were so graceful and they were so gentle with the power of God on them and they stood there and, and with tears of gratitude and the power of God, it blessed that audience. Now, the singers before them was, was a blessing, but they didn't really ring a bell like that. 
And I perhaps was unwise in what I said, but I thought I knew the brother well enough. And I bragged on the trio to the quartet <laughs> after they sat down. I mean, I just looked over at him after after second. I said, man, I lie. Oh, that's a blessing. I said, I, I didn't realize those people had a touch of God like that. He said, most of the time they don't. I like to fell off of that pew. I couldn't hardly believe it. Right there in the power of God and the blessing of God. Instead of rejoicing and saying, Lord, thank you for blessing my friends. Thank you for putting your power on them. He said, most of the time. And not that good. Most of the time he said, they don't bless you like that. Well, I wasn't really surprised when he struck completely out the next time. I mean, the one that said that. You see, there's something tonight. If we are honest in our soul, sometimes there's something other or someone other than him controlling us. And James is saying, as he contrasts this one wisdom with the other wisdom, James is saying, this kind that comes from man and the world system and even demonic, he says it results with envying and strife. Word strife means a party spirit. A spirit of rivalry. I mean, where a person starts to get back at the other, trying to outdo the other one. Someone, someone that does something and, 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 they, and they excel in it, here's the other crowd's going to say, Boy, they're not going to beat me. I'm going to listen. That's the world. Let the world have competition tonight. We're all on the same team. I believe God's people ought to give it the best all time. I don't think we ought to ever come on this platform with cold hearts and try to be a blessing. I don't think we ought to ever stand up and try to sing or preach or teach when we're not ready because they get what we are, not what we say. If we get up here and try to be a blessing when we haven't been with God, we'll fall flat. I think we ought to give it 100%. Anybody that knows me knows that, that I detest half-heartedness, and I think God does. But you listen to me tonight. We're not in competition. We're all on the same team. One stands up and hits a home run. The rest of us would say, hallelujah. Thank God he's on our side. I was meeting one time and back then a few years ago. No, Dr. R.G. Lee was still living. What a preacher. I mean, Dr. Lee, could, he could paint word pictures, the adjectives he could use, and, and stood, and he was in his 80s then, hair white as snow, voice clear as a bell, and he preached on payday someday. Oh, what a, what a message. One preacher said, that makes me want to quit to hear a preacher like that. <laughs> said, what a big hammer he swings. Well, I understood what he was saying. He said to you, and I said, don't let me throw you a curve. But <laughs> I said, I'm glad he swings a big hammer. And I'm glad he's on our side. But that don't make me want to quit. It makes me want to keep on pecking my little hammer. Amen. I just want to keep on myself too. Now, the simple truth is, if we'll ever accept the fact that you're not supposed to be somebody else, and you're unique, and God made you, and you ought to want to be the best you can be for God, but don't ever try to be another person because you can never be them, and then you won't be yourself, and you'll be some kind of misfit. Amen? Just be who you are and what you are for the glory of God. Envy. I heard John do one time where there was a... Said there was an eagle as I preached Sunday morning could soar with such grace and such rapidity through the, up into the heavens. And another got a little jealous because he couldn't fly just like that one with such grace and such ease. And when he caught no one looking, he'd take a tail feather. <laughs> but he missed. And he took another. And he missed. And it wasn't long. He was grounded completely. Amen. You don't fly after a while. And you see, the truth is, the moral of that, that, that silly little story is that you start throwing at others when they start flying a little higher than you.
you're going to ground yourself completely and you'll be walking and they'll keep on flying for God. He says, for this business of earthly wisdom's in control, you can mark it down. There'll be envy, there'll be strife, there'll be little party spirits of where people trying to outdo each other, where people are trying to, trying to lord it over each other. And he says, there'll be confusion. That's the third mark. Oh, such confusion reigns in some places simply because God's not in control. And he just simply says, every evil work, the word for evil there means futile, useless, empty. He says the work just never comes to anything. It'll just be the word, the same word for vain. And the word vain just means something empty or useless or futile. And so he calls it an evil work. Now, in the next three verses or two verses, James is going to let us take inventory. You may want to put them down. He says that if you have wisdom, if you've obtained, you've secured wisdom from the source, which is God, it'll show up this way, the showing of it. And he names six things that wisdom will give you victory over. It's right here in this verse. First thing he says, notice he says the wisdom, that's from above. I've entitled the subject tonight, I've entitled it wisdom from above for living below. Wisdom from above for living below. And he says this wisdom, this business that he's called wisdom, just when God's controlling people and you have the mind of the Lord and you can be able to see things from his viewpoint and be able to make decisions like he would make if he was in this situation. That's what wisdom is. He says this is the way you can tell if you have it. First of all, it's pure. I said it overcomes some things in our life. The first thing James tells us, it overcomes sin. Note the word he uses with this. He says, first, it's pure. The implication is, if you haven't overcome sin, if you tolerate sin, if you're taking up for sin in your life, James is simply saying there's no, no point of going to these other five things that wisdom overcomes because this is first on the list. Implication is you can't have number two if you, you skip number one. And so first, it's pure. I mean, you see, God is a holy God. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. And if I'm somehow knowing there's unconfessed sin in my life, unrepented sin in my life, and claim to be filled with God, James says, forget it. James says, you're not controlled with God. You're not filled with God. If unless there is, and the word they use for pure here is a word that indicates a, an attitude that's highly sensitive toward that which is wrong. Don't miss what I'm saying here tonight. I do not believe that you can live sinless, perfect, in the sense that you're perfect like God is perfect. Listen carefully. But the Bible does teach tonight that you and I, if we're going to walk with God, we can't have known, unconfessed, unrepented sin in our life. I don't boast when I say this, but I would never dare start to walk up on the platform and address people with a known, unconfessed sin in my life. I'd be, I'd, if you let me put it this way, I'd be scared to death to do it. Stand in His stead to represent Him and knowing that there would be unrepented, unconfessed, unlamented sin in my life, not on your life. And if we're not careful, there's times in our life we know there's sin there. We know there's something wrong. And we regard it, as the apostle or the writer of Psalms said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me when I pray. To regard is to know that it's there, but to excuse it or to alibi or just to do nothing about it, take up for it. First thing he says true wisdom does, it overcomes sin. It's pure. And then he says it's peaceable. Look at that verse again. Second thing he says it gives victory over is not only over sin, but 
True wisdom from above gives victory in one's life over strife. Over strife. Oh, so many are, are instead of peacemakers, they seem to be troublemakers. Instead of having a peaceful inner life, there is that discontent. There is that pulling apart. James will pick up this subject in chapter 4 again. He's going to ask, look in verse 1. He's going to say, Whence come wars and fightings among you? Talking to a church again. Come they not hence? And I think he looks with the end as he stood there before him. Even of your lusts, that is, your desires, that war in your members within a person. James was really saying there's a civil war going on inside of a person. You see, if I've got civil war in here, I won't be able to get along with you. And you know what we're going to learn in chapter 4 is if we really ever have true peace and contentment within, it has to come from him. And then when I'm at peace with myself, I can be at peace with you, and I'll be at peace with other people. But you see, if I'm wrong toward him, it shows up in here. I've got civil war. I'm, I'm restless, and I feel like I'm falling apart. There'll be problem in my home. There'll be problem on my job. There'll be problem in my church because you see what I am in here, well, I repeat, shows up around me. And a lot of times we try to treat symptoms. We rub a little salve on the sore instead of cutting the thing out by the root. And James is going to tell us we have to go back to the source, back to God, get right with God. And if I'm right with God, I'll be right with myself, and it'll be easy for me to stay right with you. And he says, if a person has this wisdom, he's peaceable. There's a settled peace, not only within, but he's a peacemaker. Well, that wisdom is not. Everybody's got to have his way. Bible says that strife only comes from pride in the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom in the Bible. And we can learn to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. You go through Proverbs once a month. You go through that book 12 times a year. And oh, how God speaks to our heart from the book of Proverbs. And that's, that's the wisdom book. That's, that's where God puts things together and says, here's the way you do it. And he says, strife only comes from pride. Pride means self. Anytime there's strife in the home, either one or two that's into it is trying to have their own way. Anytime you've got strife in the church, somebody's full of self. Somebody's trying to project their own selfish ambition and have their way. Well, he says this wisdom that's from above, how's it seen? How's it shown? We're talking about the source of it. God is the source. We've looked at the securing of it. Prayer is the way we get it. And now we're looking at the showing of it. How is wisdom seen in a person's life? James says, let him show. Well, it's shown, number one, by overcoming sin. It's pure. It's shown, number two, by being peaceable. It overcomes strife. The third thing it gives victory in one's life is not only sin and strife, but it's, it's what I call stubbornness. It's gentle. Gentle. And easy to be entreated. A wise person is somebody you can get close to. A wise person is someone you feel comfortable with. A wise person is someone you can talk to. Someone that you feel they, they are understanding. James says they're easily to be entreated. They're not, they don't have a standoffish attitude about them. They're not aloof off somewhere alone. Our Lord, people came to him, even small children, climbed up into his blessed lap. Well, the disciples thought he was too busy, too busy, and said, and he started rebuking them. But he said, he said, permit them to come, forbid them not, for such is the kingdom, and pick up little children. 
A poor, sinful woman. They said they caught an act of adultery, and those Pharisees hated Christ so much, and they assault such legalistic rule keepers. They're trying to catch him breaking the law, and they brought a poor woman early in the morning. They found her out somewhere. They said they caught her in the act of adultery. My question is, if they wanted to clean up their community, why didn't they bring the man also? It takes two to commit adultery, amen? But they just brought that one poor woman and threw her down at Jesus' feet and said, The law says stoner. What do you say? He was riding on the dust of the floor down in the temple area where he was at, in the outer court area. He wrote something. I don't know what he put down there. No one else really knows, but he wrote something there that really arrested their attention. And they tell us an older manuscript really says, not only when they heard it, but when they saw it, they began to go out. And, and the Bible said the oldest to the youngest turned and walked out of there. And Jesus looked at that poor woman and said, Where is thine accusers? Has any man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. There was something about him that constrained that poor, pitiful woman to stay in his presence and look up to him and call him Lord. There was something winsome about Jesus Christ. He never, ever compromised with sin. He was against sin, but he did love the poor sinner. And a sinner can know if you understand them and try to feel for them, and if you have a heart for them, there's something about it that God lets a poor sinner in his loneliness and emptiness. He knows if you have a Christ-like spirit. Easy to be entreated. Overcome sin. Overcome strife. Overcome stubbornness. A person that's obstinate is a stubborn, hard-headed person that has to have his way, has to be right all the time, has to be seen. And James said, oh, no, that doesn't come above. That doesn't take anything from above to act stubborn and self-will. That comes from below. That's demonic. That's, that's selfish or sensual, means oneself. Well, the fourth thing he tells us it overcomes, not only is it pure to overcome sin, this heavenly wisdom is peaceable. It overcomes strife. It is gentle and easy to be entreated. It overcomes stubbornness. But then he says it's full of mercy and good fruits. It overcomes selfishness. The mercy. The person that has this wisdom will prefer someone else. He'll be merciful to the person. He'll be gracious. The word good fruits here, the implication is, is, is to have in the fruit of that mercy, which is a gracious attitude, a gentle attitude towards someone. Well, we said there's six things. Number one, it's pure, it overcomes sin. Number two, it's peaceable, overcomes strife. Number three, it's gentle, easy to be entreated, overcomes stubbornness. It's full of mercy, good fruits, it overcomes selfishness. But then it's without partiality. It overcomes snobbishness. We're going to learn back in chapter 2. I've entitled, when I preached it before, the first 12 verses of chapter 2, I call it the sad case of the snooty usher. <laughs> and uh, there was an usher there in that church in James's day that, boy, that rich man came in. And, oh, he saw, the Bible said he had a, had a ring on his, on his finger and said he had on gay clothing. <laughs> Better be careful how you use that today, amen. You tell someone he got on gay clothing, you may be in trouble. Or oh, it could be otherwise, too. You don't ever know. But uh, he says in that just pictured expensive clothing. And this usher, who was finding a seat for people, he looked at that man's gold ring. He looked at his heart shaft and marks. He looked at that, he looked at that expensive suit he had on. 
Oh, my, he said, we better put that fellow in an important place. And he made because of his partiality, because he had respect unto people. And boy, James comes on the scene, and he's got a sermon that says, Brethren, claim not. He said, profess not to have the faith of Jesus Christ when you're treating people with that preferential treatment, lifting up one and putting down others. Did you know God loves all people? And he's saying a wise person is a person that that victory of that wisdom will be seen in the fact that it'll overcome snobbishness. He won't give some people preferential treatment and then put the other people down in some inferior place. So he says it's without partiality. And then fifth, or sixth and, and final, there's six things he tells us wisdom overcomes and it can be seen in your life. We've looked at the source of it. God is the one that gives wisdom. The securing of it, we get it through prayer. If we'll pray and pray in faith, and faith comes from the Bible, and pray with firmness. I mean, don't just say a little prayer. James is saying, just stay with it. Have, have per perseverance in your prayer life. And then said, you can begin to take checkup and see if there's any wisdom. It'll overcome sin, strife, stubbornness, selfishness. It'll overcome snobbishness. Then the last thing he says about it, he, said, he tells us that that verse in verse two, uh, uh, 18, the third chapter, or verse 17 rather, says it's without hypocrisy. That is, uh, it overcomes sham, pretense, put on in a person's life. Oh, how James uh, was against that business of hypocrisy and put on, and playing a little part. It was a word, the word hypocrite. Our Lord, see, he was a, he was a brother of James, half-brother. James just grew up in the home with him there. And our Lord, he had so much to say about, uh, really it means playing a part, a play actor. The word came prominent in the days of our Lord, in the days of James, and it was a word that, the, that was used around the Greek theater. And when a person came out on the platform, they would be masked. And the word that they would use to describe that person, they would, it was our word translated hypocrite. Simply meant that he's playing a part. That's not really the real person. They're just an actor tonight. They're acting out a part that's not really them. And James said, if a man has the wisdom of God, he's not acting a part in his Christian life. What you see is really him. He'll be the same in his home. He'll be the same on his job. He'll be the same in the classroom, in the office. He'll be the same at church. I mean, he's just real. And that's exactly as we pointed out the first week. James is talking about the business. And one writer entitled their book, Will the Real Phony Please Stand Up? And James exposes that business that's sham and pretense. And then he closes by saying this, the result of it. He said there'll be some victory. And the fruit of righteousness, and he's been talking about right living, see. Been talking about overcoming sin and strife and stubbornness and selfishness and snobbishness and sham. So he sums up that by calling it righteousness. And says the fruit, that is the result of that kind of living, is sown. Now James is picturing something like a seed. When it's sown, it pro it's productive. It produces something. It's sown in peace of them that make peace. James is saying it'll sow peace in your heart and it'll sow peace in others. And when you have peace, that means the war's over. Amen? And James is saying the battle's over. You, you've won. And wisdom was the thing. Wisdom has won the war. And now you're not a slave to sin and to self and snobbishness and all these other things he talks about. And he says, where's it come from? 
It comes from God. Let him ask. I'm glad we've got a God tonight that says, Call unto me and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that you know not. If we're filled with wisdom, it'll give some victories in our life. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed.